I'm thinking seriously about doing it. I wouldn't. I'm thinking seriously about it. What do you think? I wouldn't. Guys? No. It's not a good idea. I wouldn't do it. I want this now. This is important to me. I'm an adult and I want to grow a goatee. In three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall. Those stories plus. Hi, I'm Steve Cimino. I'm Adam Amin. And you're listening to Those Stories Plus, the Sports Night Podcast. Today, we tackle episode five, Mary Pat Shelby. Now, you and I were both talking before the podcast started. We do have to, uh, I guess I guess it's another addendum to episode it's, four. It's a, definitely a big correction, which is so, I'm so, <laughs> I, I'm overly bitter about it because we almost got it right. We, disca- <laughs> we, we discussed it in, in the midst of recording that podcast, episode four, but... Our, uh, I guess we'll call her friend of the podcast, yes, yes. Uh, Yardley Smith, who uh, had the great, great cameo in uh, episode four, Intellectual Property, and is the voice of Lisa Simpson, among other things, of course. Uh, we wanted to make sure we did say it is Yardley Smith, despite it being spelled Y-E-A-R-D-L-E-Y. Yes. It is pronounced Yardley, like backyard. So that uh, that is a very important, it's, to our hearts, It's a just very a, important It was event. embarrassing to me to be like, I think it's Yardley. <laughs> But let's just go with Yardley. <laughs> it's like saying two plus two. I'm pretty sure it's four, but let's, let's call, call it five. five. Yeah. yeah. So that was a little upsetting. But I'm, then, I'm, I'm glad we were able to address that. Yes. That's just, whew, I feel so much better yeah, already. There's, there's a big weight off my shoulders. And as punishment, I think maybe it's uh, maybe it's Thespis coming after me. Uh, I stubbed my toe, my pinky toe today, and I think I broke it. And I swear to you, at the moment, I was thinking pain, a lot of pain, uh, much like Casey in the last episode. So uh, that's, that's my punishment. With old business out of the way, I'm excited to talk about a very, very profound episode, Mary Pat Shelby. Uh, This was originally broadcast on October 20th, 1998, written by Tracy Stern and Aaron Sorkin, the first episode to have more than one writer, not just a Sorkin-penned episode, and of course directed by Tommy Shalami. By the way, the uh, new synopsis uh, that we're delivering now comes directly from the box set booklet. Straight out of the 10th anniversary edition box set. It's this beautiful little booklet. And I looked at it last week after recording the episodes and said, this is so much better. So, so our synopsis, hit me with the synopsis. Our Mary Pat Shelby synopsis. A notorious star football player agrees to appear as a guest on Sports Night. But when his reputation for hurting women hits home, Dana has to make a tough decision. Now, it's a great, first off, very clean. Thank you, Sports Night booklet. Yes. Not only will we be discussing this episode, but we have our first guest of the podcast as well, Tess Quinlan of NBC Sports, fresh off covering the Rio Olympics, an excellent job by the entire NBC Sports team. She will join us, and she has such a deep connection to this show. Uh, I couldn't think of anybody better to, to have as our first guest. A good friend of mine from, uh, from, uh, from the Midwest, a Marquette graduate, uh, and a fantastic uh, female in the world of sports media, and uh, certainly a lot of things that she brings to the table that will uh, will be very excited to share with you uh, when we get a chance to go to, inter- to her interview. A pleasure to talk to and lots of lots of good insight on this, so I'm, I'm excited to get to that as well. You said it's a very somber episode Compar- comparatively, comparatively to the first four. Uh, no laugh track is the first thing that I wrote down. Like I didn't hear, outside maybe a smidge of, uh, of a sound of laughter when Dan, uh, I think he said, you know, can we throw the flag on that? He had a, li- a quick line, just almost a throwaway mm-hmm. line. Uh, right before things kind of took a turn for the series. I, there was no laugh track pretty much throughout this episode, first time through. My sixth bullet says, note, already noticing the missing laugh track. Nice. nice. <laughs> so, yeah, so which, which I know is a, a huge point of contention for fans of this show. Like, 
why is there a laugh yes. track? And this is the first episode, really, that it, it is not a concern. It's not a distraction. And obviously, the somber tone of the episode probably has something to do with that. Definitely. And there are a few, a few lines that are definitely in there for the laugh. And it's so... At first, a little bit weird not to hear the laugh track, but then you get to chuckle to yourself and move on, which is really I appreciate better. that. Yeah, yes. I appreciate that as a fan. And and early in the show, there's there is some energy and some laughter, and and Isaac and Dana started off, and clearly they're getting ready to perform an interview or just got the the word that they're going to have an interview. And Isaac somehow brings up uh, some weird some weird stuff that you and I couldn't decipher. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did more than a, f- a few minutes of Googling on this. <laughs> you and me both. And I was, I'm was i still just blown away. So the episode starts, as you said, Isaac's hanging up the phone, just psyched out of his mind, talking to Dana. We got him. We got him. They've booked Kristen Patrick, who is this football player, apparently had some kind of issue in the background, but is a big get for the show. And they are psyched about promoting him. And Isaac throws out that line when Dana says, we got to promote the hell out of this. He says, what do I look like? I just sailed in from Minskopinsk. Dana says, you have to stop using Yiddish expressions. So immediately onto the Google, there's no Yiddish expression about sailing in from what Minskopinsk. What exactly is Minskopinsk? I, I figured, Min, I mean, Minsk is a place. Pinsk is a place. Pinsk is a place. <laughs> what the hell is Minskopinsk? And I couldn't find anything outside of, I think you and I found the yes. same joke so or something. Apparently there is a joke, and I mean, I get it. <laughs> But it's not really a joke, and it doesn't really pertain to anything that happened between these two. The story, or the joke, goes, Two rival businessmen meet in a Warsaw train station. One says to the other, where are you going? To Minsk, says the second. And the other replies, to Minsk, eh? What nerve you have? I know you're telling me you're going to Minsk because you want me to think that you're really going to Pinsk, but I so happen to know that you really are going to Minsk, so why are you lying to me? And that's the end of it. That's literally the end of the paragraph, and I just kind of sat on my couch just going, what... What do I do now with I was, my life? I got nothing. I, I got nothing. I, mean, I got nothing on that. So if any of you <laughs> somehow find the the reference or know the reference, perhaps you you have a Yiddish joke background, maybe you can help us out with that. Feel free to tweet at us at those stories pod and let us know because we are very confused it's... about the origins of that. So that scene ends on that weird note. And Dana starts to run out to the newsroom to tell everybody about getting Christian Patrick. We start that scene in the newsroom with Dan and all the control room folks. We have Kim and Chris and Elliot and Dave and Will debating very seriously something. I don't know if you should do it. I think I might do it. I wouldn't do it. It turns out they're talking about Dan possibly growing a goatee. I like that reveal. It's pretty funny. But I also agree that no, he should not grow a goatee. He should not grow a goatee. And so I grew a goatee. I grew a goatee my first year working at ESPN. I'll post the photo uh, on our website, thosestoriespod.weebly.com. When this episode gets posted, you'll see a link to it. <laughs> like how nobody said. I anything. like how sad you sound about it. Like thinking back, like this was a terrible it was, moment. It in was my a life. terrible. Like it was bad, Steve. It, it is one of the worst visuals. Nobody said I couldn't do it, but my agent called me one day and said. What's up with the goatee? <laughs> and I thought maybe I should maybe I should get away from the goatee. I do have a full beard now and I wear that because I think I look better with the beard. beard is and good. people actually like that. So we'll stick with the beard. It's like that Dimitri Martin joke where it's like I saw a guy wearing a leather jacket and thought, "Wow, that's cool." And then I saw a guy wearing a leather vest and thought, "Wow, that's not cool." I figured out cool 
is leather sleeves. <laughs> and for me, it's it's basically basically it's good looking hair on your cheeks. Hair on the cheeks is, is, what, does is what does it. That's for actually me. a perfect way of describing <laughs> it. It can be really cool, but you're missing a little a little. Piece There's something there. missing there. Oh, so Dana comes in and starts with this recurring line throughout the episode. Dan, how much do you love me? Isaac had already said this to Dana and reveals to Dan, hey, we got Christian Patrick. And he says the same thing. We got to promote the hell out of this. They they all know immediately this is a big this, deal. Yeah, you're setting this up. This is a huge deal. It's, remember, it's a third place show. It's behind ESPN. It's behind Fox. They're struggling to find their footing and really get into a lot of households. The bottom line really matters in this regard. So this is going to be huge for them. They continue talking and getting excited. Dan fired up. And then Dana immediately switches her attention to Natalie, where she says, you're going to do the pre-interview at the Meadowlands. So we know, without them really saying it, that Patrick is either on the Giants or the Jets. Right. So that makes sense anyway, because we're in New York. But we get that little detail. And we find out, Dana says, We are going to win our time slot in 14 major markets for the first time since we went on the air. So we find out this is going to be a huge deal. Everybody wants to talk to him about this. And, and we're going to get going. We have a Sorkinism right off the bat here where Dana ends the scene by her saying, I'm talking to myself for no reason, which happens a couple times on Sports Night, a few times on The West Wing. I'm almost positive it happens on Studio 60 at some point. And it definitely happens on the newsroom. I wrote down, and actually we'll, we'll push ahead a little bit here, but there are a lot of Sorkinisms in this show, in this episode. There, It is rife with Sorkinisms. I wrote down, talking to myself, leave the money on the night table, we're doing a big thing badly. References to your credentials. Natalie later in the show says, I have a journalism degree from Northwestern. Like, there's a lot of stuff here that goes back to the uh, the old hashtag Sorkinism. You've got Dana being unable to tell a joke. You can't tell a joke. Studio yeah. 60, Harriet Hayes, a professional comedian. Can't, can't tell, tell a joke. joke. So a lot of, you're right, this, this thing is drenched in Sorkinisms. But this is where they all, for the most part, make their first appearance, which is pretty exciting. We go to a commercial break. And we come back with Dan still talking about goatees, just naming famous people that have had goatees at some point. King Tut, Freud, Galileo. Apparently Galileo did not have a goatee. Apparently he had a full beard. Ah. So so just just throwing that out there. It's not a big deal at all. But it was... you, you, You might be able to assume that maybe at some point Galileo had a goatee. And then like me... Whoever was representing him and his mathematic <laughs> and uh, geographical skill and scientific skill was like, hey, lose the goatee. <laughs> so we have then the rules, the guidelines. We're going to have a five and a half minute interview. Casey will do a question and a follow up, and then Dan will do the same, etc. But we find out Mary Pat Shelby is completely off limits. This takes Dan and Casey a bit. Oh, no, like, because that's the reason. And we get our little background here. Christian Patrick punched his girlfriend and threw her down the stairs. So. That's why they want to talk. That's why he's such a hot topic. And that's why it would be such a huge boost for their ratings. But they're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed to talk about this. I mean, you get a big interview. Everybody's going, we got to watch uh, Sportsnet. We got to watch CSC because they've got Christian Patrick. And you're sitting there as a fan, of whether it's of the team or whether it's somebody who's concerned about the, the issue that's going on. And you're going, when are they going to ask? When are they going to ask about Mary Pat Shelby? And if it never comes, you're going to look at that network and think... This is BS. Like, I don't want to watch these guys. They're not they're not catering to what we need to know as as fans. And and there's so much parallel in this episode to what 18 years later now. I mean, think about it. Between the issues of domestic violence mm-hmm. that are all too commonplace right now, harassment of female journalists, which we'll talk to Tess about in uh, later on in the episode, and the balance of journalistic integrity 
and what's good for the bottom line, which is a constant debate among producers and network executives. I mean, this is this is you want to talk about be, being ahead of your time. This is an episode that 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 consistently hits on stuff that's very very pertinent today. It's interesting, too, that almost all the points of view and all the different kind of sides of this argument you just mentioned are represented in this scene with our three characters, where we've got Dana, who at this point says she will do anything short of a wet t-shirt contest to get them better ratings. So she's really going for the ratings. Casey, who is furious at the fact that, oh, we can't mention the one thing that we should have this interview with, he's telling Dana, you, you're being played like a fiddle, you got beat like a drum, you made this agreement with two hours left because they know you won't be able to back out because you want those ratings so badly. And then, oddly, you've got Dan, who's just kind of going with the flow, and tells uh, Casey later on that he's taking a day off from from doing the right thing. He's just kind of sitting on the bench for this one. So you've got both sides, and then kind of the middle, like, ah, oh, whatever, I'm just going to do whatever happens here. Yeah, I think it's just, it, you know, the, there are so many lines that hit you hard. The leave the money on the night table line, which again comes up again in the first season of The West Wing. Now, if our tactics seem less than civilized, it's because so are our attackers. In any event, I don't feel like standing here taking a civics lesson from a hooker. Josh. We don't need your cooperation, Lori. One of your guys wrote you a check and the IRS works for me. Get the hell out of my house. Just give me a name. What do you want, money? I'll give you money. Oh, fine. I'll give you a name. I'll then I'll hop back into the shower and you can leave the money on the nightstand. How about that? I don't think he meant... Yes, he did! I mean, those are hard-hitting lines. And that's a lot of punch to hit somebody who takes their job seriously, like somebody who thinks journalistic integrity is important, like Dana and Casey and Dan. These are all people that care about that aspect of their jobs. And Casey feels like Dana's selling them up the river just to get one night of ratings points, and it doesn't seem to be fair. You promote the thing nonstop, all day, all night, then they get you to agree to this nonsense at the 11th hour, and there's no chance you'll pull it. You got beat like a drum. Something was better than nothing, and we needed this. Yeah, and Patrick's people need to show their guy can still sell sneakers and soda. When the whole thing's over, we hop in the shower, and they leave the money on the night table. Plus, we get to show Mary Pat Shelby the less she can catch 80 passes in a season. The world could honestly give a damn about her concussion and broken jaw. I don't think I need a civics lesson from you, Casey. Well, I think you need one from somebody, Dana, because you're doing a big thing badly. That scene comes to an end, and my note says, very typical of what I think of when I think of Sports Night so far. This is the most Sports Night feeling episode. Like, it's really come into its own. I think just the tone, we've got funny lines interspliced with serious subject matter already, even during this conversation about Mary Pat Shelby... I have a couple nitpicky notes, though, as well, because okay. how can I not? Timeline in this episode is really throwing me off big time. I kept pausing and thinking and then and then typing here. So when Dana goes to Natalie about the pre-interview, she says, tomorrow night, immediately after the game, he's, she's going to do the pre-interview. The show, Sports Night, goes on at 11 o'clock. She's going to have 90 minutes before showtime, which implies 9.30, which means what time is this football game being played? I guess it could be an afternoon game. That all is fine. So, so they're so they're doing. I mean, it must be the early game, so a one o'clock game at at the Meadowlands, and they're getting ready for a Monday night interview. But Dana says tomorrow night. That would be tomorrow afternoon. This is what I'm saying about nitpicking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm throwing I'm thrown off already with that. Uh, then during this conversation in this last scene, we're told it's two hours before showtime, which means it's nine o'clock. But it is bright daylight outside. <laughs> so that's just a little. Come on, let's let's little, get these technical anac- uh, issues. What, is, what do they call an- anachronisms? Anachronisms. Anachronisms. Um, and then a little other piece when Dan is just kind of sitting this one out. He's reading a magazine that's got tons of American flag stickers covering the name, though it's very clearly Forbes. And later <laughs> on, Dana has a Dr. Pepper sitting in front of her, but there's a star sticker or a flower sticker covering the doctor. I don't <laughs> just, know. These are just, just little things I on the side of it's the just can. Just like. 
flower pepper. What are you drinking there? Pepper? So uh, big raging bull sign in their oh, office yeah. too. I noticed that I didn't. That was an ostentatiously large. It's raging bull poster. It's like a raging bull billboard that they've pulled down <laughs> so, and put I, in they there. stole it from like Thirty Fifth Street. Just ripped it. It was right above down. the garden, and they decided to put it in their office. So the scene closes and comes to our next, where we have Natalie returning from doing the pre-interview. She seems flustered. And Jeremy is in, they're in the editing room. Jeremy is apparently doing a voiceover on a highlight, he says. I don't, see, another thing that I don't really understand, because Jeremy's, like, if you're a highlight producer, if you're a researcher, or if you're an AP, uh, which is an associate producer, you're not really putting your voice to highlights. Typically, that's saved for the anchors right. or, or the reporters that are doing stories or whatever it may be. So I was a little confused by that as well. He notices that Natalie seems to be very tender in her wrist. She says she got it jammed in a thing in the in the door of the van. I wasn't paying attention. It was stupid. And already you can tell, A, you can tell she's lying. And I, I, I wrote down that it's like when you're sneaking into the house as in high school and lying to your parents. Yeah. She's volunteering a lot of information that, like, isn't necessary. And that's a telltale sign that somebody's lying if they just start spewing information to you, I feel like. I think Sabrina Lloyd played this and, and first off, the whole episode, she's really good. She's excellent. She is episode. really good. So and, and and notice that we've always kind of gotten a little bit more on everybody else and you gotta get a de- episode devoted to them or at least good chunks of it. So we finally get a lot of time devoted to Natalie and Sabrina Lloyd did an excellent job in this episode with the kind of flustered answers that she would give to Jeremy. Then later on the the discussions she'd have with Jeremy and Dan the end of the episode she's really really good as well so major props to sabrina lloyd first time we really get to experience her outside of just being the bubbly sidekick to dana we really get a lot of substance here from sabrina lloyd really well acted by her we get another new scene here where dana is trying to tell a joke because natalie early on implied that she didn't have a sense of humor um and again we talked about that being a sarcasm, how she telegraphs her jokes um and this is in the middle of a meeting where Dan keeps spewing out people with... It's pretty impressive the goatees. amount of people that he can bust out with that that uh, that have goatees. I also had a note that Dan himself is being... Josh Charles gives him a very, very calm performance in this episode. He's very quiet. He's very soft-spoken. Even when he's saying funny things like Dana says, are you just going to keep naming people with goatees? And he says, as they yeah. come to me, he's very, he's very soft. Like he's... Dan is really sitting back a little bit in this episode. And I love this. I love that about him. I was going to say, I think this is my favorite type of Dan. I think my favorite style of Dan is laid back, uh, sarcastic, dry wit Dan, I think is one of my favorite, is probably my favorite Dan right now. We've got a great line where uh, we're told the reason you can't grow a goatee is because it would cause a lighting problem. It would be difficult to light you. And Dan, Casey says to Dan, they still haven't figured out how to light your nose. And I love the Dan throws a Kleenex in the air and says, Can I get a flag on that play, please? And um, again, I think that's the one just a time little tiny laugh track I can there. hear a little bit of laugh track in the background of that. And it's just funny because it was the only time in this entire episode where I thought I heard it. And it's ironic because it signifies the end of the funny. Like that, that moment, that line, you know, kind of a throwaway line signifies the end of the of the fun times in this episode it gets really serious as soon as isaac walks in. immediately when isaac walks in he says we have to get some people on the phones um a maintenance worker witnessed christian patrick exposing himself to a woman and he might have done more than that uh he reveals that the the maintenance worker saw christian patrick grab a woman's arm and we have jeremy perk up and say was it her wrist he knows right away it was natalie natalie was assaulted so that scene ends with everybody breaking up and going to hit the phones. Also, an interesting note, we get Jeremy saying, son of a bitch, which I think is the first, like, straight, straight vulgarity. Up cur- yeah, straight up cursing. And it's very, again, as we were saying, 
Sabrina Lloyd kills it in this episode. And also, Josh Molina does too, because Jeremy, as all as being so defensive, as being so intense from that line forward, is also great all the way through. And they, they really have a lot of just peaked emotions going on throughout this episode. Yeah, I was really impressed with uh, with Josh Molina in this as well. Because there's a lot more subtlety in, in this episode than there has been in, in the others overall from start to finish. Everything's really subtle. Like, I mean, there's a moment where, at, where you know, after they kind of talk to Natalie and Isaac's talking to Natalie and saying, you know, we're going to have a car take you home. And she's so concerned. And it's coincidental that Natalie says, can I just go back to work? Because we'll talk with Tess about that. And she'll bring up the same kind of point. But, you know, she, she all she wants to do is go back to work. She just she doesn't want to deal with anything about this. She doesn't think it's a big deal. Like, she just wants to have things go back to normal. And you see the, a lot of the subtle looks that Josh Molina's character gives. Uh, Isaac is really subtle in this episode. There's a lot of nonverbal stuff that Isaac does. Robert Giome does a great job in this episode with looking at Dana. Everybody's kind of kind of nonverbally showing their frustrations in a really soft-spoken tone. That is right into that scene. This next scene, we've got our main principal cast, basically, Dan, Jeremy, Dana, Isaac, all gathered around Natalie. And yeah, they're really, everyone is just right in there being emotional, being connected to her, and really... I was going to say, and they're acting, but they are doing a great job. Yeah. Everyone is, is showing these their feelings right on their sleeves right here. Um, and as you said, Natalie says, I just want to do my job. Don't take me home. I'm an associate producer. I'm a senior associate producer. We have a show in 38 minutes. I just want to work, right? Isaac is going to get legal on the phone. Dan, Casey, and Dana start to argue about, well, what are we going to do? Are we really going to still have this interview? And we have this great walk and talk where Dana starts to explain her side of things. There happens to be an exclusive story sitting in the green room that's going to be wildfire whether we like the match or not. It happened. It's news. I can't decide not to pursue it just because it happened to us. Not only that, I think Natalie deserves to have her story told. Don't use the last part. What? You had me till the last part. Of course, it's a legitimate news story, and it'd be embarrassing if we weren't the ones to break it. But Natalie didn't seem at all to me anxious to have her story told. And speaking as a friend, I think it's wrong of you to use that. I am not rationalizing, Danny. I am saying what I believe. That's fine, but in a minute, you're going to have to float an argument by Isaac, and I'm just saying, you had me till the last part. And that seems to trigger in Dana, wait a second, we can do something with this still, right? This is, she says, it's a whole new ball game, as she realizes we can do something. And, uh, of course, Casey calls Dan, and I thought you were taking this one out. I thought you were sitting back, and Dan says, I threw one in for free, which is great. I'm a little conflicted here with Dan in this moment because, like, he, you can tell Dan wants to do the right thing, and it kind of comes out later when he has his own time with Natalie in this episode, but it's weird because Dan's kind of going along with, like, he's helping Dana. He's like, you're going to have to float an idea past Isaac, and you had me until the last part. So he's basically giving Dana the blueprint to let Dana do what she wants to do, which is kind of shady when you really think about it. She's basically training Natalie for Mary Pat Shelby. It is. She really does kind of sell her out. Um, as we come back from the commercial, she's in there with the lawyers, and she is saying, well, we don't really know what happened, but here's, what, here's the deal I'm willing to make. Natalie's going to deny everything if we can mention Mary Pat Shelby. So she is saying, you know, yeah, our, my, my close friend and coworker." was sexually assaulted here, but we'll just pretend that didn't happen as long as we can talk about what we know is going to get us these major ratings. Now, one of the lawyers is, uh, we just know him as Evans. His last name's Evans. He's played by Ray Wise, fairly well-known character actor going back to like the 70s and 80s. He was on Dallas and TJ Hooker and RoboCop. 
He might have one of the most distinct hairstyles. <laughs> like, you want to talk about a slick pompadour. Ray Wise is a slick pompadour on top of that on top of that head. He does. Even, like, these little extra characters here, they do a great job as well. Every, all, the, all the performances in this episode yeah. are very strong. And there's a lot of really, really impassioned arguments happening from a lot of different angles. Really, here. really s- some good subtle acting, some good aggressive acting. And I liked Ray Wise just going... Kind of looking at Dana because he realizes what a, what an opportunity this is too, because now you know my his idiot client has done something dumb again by sexually assaulting a female reporter, and now he gets to get him off the hook for that and not worry about the big you know that's gonna be that would be a bigger issue if he lets that come to court or whatever it ends up being. So all right, screw it. You can talk about Mary Pat Shelby, and he looks at Dana and goes. And you get your ratings. He knows and exactly what she's playing. Exactly. And Dana and Dana agrees and goes, yes, I do. And in that moment, Isaac, they give it, qu- I mean, the quickest shot. It is really subtle. It's really short. But they cut to Isaac just kind of giving like, kind of raises his head. And he's got like this disapproving just look on his face. This the demeanor that, that hits Dana. And Dana knows that she's screwing it up. And then there's silence for a while after the, the guys leave the the room after they leave the office it's just a lot of non-verbal acting and subtle stuff that is really making you feel how tense everybody feels in this situation oh yeah and again to keep saying how good the performances are felicity huffman is great in this scene where she is very strong and this is what i'm doing this is my professional decision and then as you said she shows that little crack of she's freaking out is this the right thing so just range being shown by everybody here as that scene ends, we come back up on Natalie in the editing room. She's taking care of some Christian Patrick stuff, having to sort of see his face on the screen. That's a powerful image there. Jeremy and Elliot are in the background, just outside the room through the window, talking. Natalie sees it, gets a little freaked, and uh, Jeremy comes in and tries to talk to her. I called this in, like, episode one. What's that? Where Natalie will tell Jeremy, this is a soundproof room, and I talked about how earlier in episode <laughs> one right. or two, you're right. they're talking through the window, and I was like, that has to be a soundproof room. Oh, there we go. Vindication. So so, so is it that. just really crappy soundproofing Apparently. because she can hear all the phones? That's... Or is it just the there are so many phone calls coming in that it's impossible oh, no. not to hear There's them. so many phone calls coming in, but I'm thinking back to Natalie screaming through it in like episode two. Yeah. And I knew it. That's why you're in third place, guys, because you've got, you've got a lot of background <laughs> got, noise ba- on your you bad sound. you got bad soundproofing. So Jeremy comes in and tries to kind of explain the deal to Natalie, and Natalie almost seems to know, yeah, I figured that's what Dana would do. She's smart. That's a, that's a good move for business, right? She seems to know that a little bit. Uh, Jeremy says, she thinks this is what you want. And she also says to her, it won't be as bad as you think if you go out and, and, and face things. And here comes Sabrina Lloyd at her finest with the, the speech she gives here. Private conversations in the corridor, secret meetings in Isaac's office, we'll have a car take you home. I'm already out of the loop. It's just tonight. No, it's not. This is a soundproof room and I can still hear the phones ringing out there. They're on the scent and they're all calling to talk to me. I have a journalism degree from Northwestern. I started out as a summer intern. I worked my way up to senior associate. Tomorrow, I'd be a cocktail party joke. So it'd actually be every bit as bad as I think. So you hear the Sorkinism in there. She said, you know, I have a journalism degree from Northwestern. Just throwing out your credentials. Always happy to throw out your credentials at any point to make sure that people know, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm a smart person. But in this, in this regard, you understand how passionate she is about it because... She doesn't want to be, well, I mean, it's a great line. I'd be a cocktail party joke. I worked my ass off for so many years to get to this point, and I'm, I want my career to go even further. And if I, if I go 
headfirst into this legal issue, my career would probably end. And that's the fear that I think a lot of women, and I work with dozens, hundreds of successful women, and I'm convinced that a lot of them who unfortunately have dealt with situations like this in some capacity, whether it's more serious than Natalie's or whether it's as serious or less serious, they're, they're always dealing with something like this, whether it's on Twitter, you know, obviously there, there was no Twitter in 1998, but imagine if there were, and Natalie was on Twitter and people found out, you know, what her handle was. I mean, they would bombard her with stuff. And we get that with, with our female colleagues far too often. It's, they're a click, it's a click and a couple of keyboard clicks away. And now you can say whatever you want to them, regardless of how much vitriol is there, or how lewd it is, or how angry or mean it is. It's brutal for a lot of the females that we work with that are so successful and work their tails off to get to where they're at. They have to deal with similar things that, that Natalie's dealing with now, and this was set 18 years ago. It's a sad sign when things are still so, things like this are still so relatable to, to today's world. Well, this scene ends with another kind of a nice touching moment there. Jeremy really cares, and he says very, very sincerely, is there anything I can do for you? He's, he's starting to show that really, really trying to back up Natalie and, and really wanting to help her out there. Uh, the scene ends, and we then come up on our next scene where Christian Patrick makes his appearance. Christian Patrick is played by Brad William Hankey. He is a face you recognize. Yes. He's got 86 acting credits. Most recently, he's on the newest season of Orange is the New Black. And I recognized him in the movie Fury with Brad Pitt, the uh, tank, World yeah. War II tank movie. He's one of the tank commanders. Kind of looks the same now, yeah. almost 20 years later. So good for he's him. Got, right he's there. got a beard in a lot of the photos that I've seen now currently, but he's a big dude. Looks like a football player. He looks like a football player. He is, so it's well casted. Uh, he is six foot four, according to his IMDb page. And he does say that he's six foot four when he and Jeremy have this really cool exchange. And think about how soft spoken we just saw Jeremy a moment ago when he was talking with Natalie. And now these two have this weird run-in where he's like, hey, where's the bathroom? And Jeremy already is kind of like, yeah, it's down the hall. Like, you can tell just from his tone. It's just, oh, this guy. Oh, this guy. And he goes, hi, I'm Chris Patrick. And he, Jeremy is not a big guy. Like, Josh Molina is not a huge guy in compared to, uh, compared to Brad Henke. But he, like, backhands his hand away. Like, Chris Patrick puts his hand out to shake Jeremy's hand and Jeremy like slaps it away he basically. Says, Get your hand out of my face. He's very it's it's, it's a switch angry. flip. Yes. A, a, somewhere between the shitty soundproofing and getting to this point with Chris Patrick, some kind of switch has been flipped. <laughs> we see the two of these guys have a little uh one-on-one and it gets it gets pretty intense very quickly. Yeah. Did I say something funny? I'm 6'4, 230 pounds. Bench press three bills, run a four four forty. What you want to dance with me, Junior? You touch her again, I'm gonna have you killed. You understand what I'm saying? I'm gonna pay someone fifty dollars to have you killed. Well, let me tell you something, Skippy. By looking in her eyes, when she got a load of me, seemed pretty impressed. And Jeremy ends it with that really creepy and seemingly very serious line that he's gonna pay somebody fifty dollars to have him killed, and it's it's. Very strange as they separate. Then that you see Christian Patrick walk and he starts he's giving someone an autograph. Like, for, well, for, at first he checks out some like brunette woman that just happens to be standing there, kind of looking at her, and then he turns around and there's one of the guys who's you know presumably like an intern or something who goes up and asks for for an autograph. But that line that Chris Patrick says uh, about kind of giving his own credentials, I guess that's a Sorkinism. Six foot four, you know he. 
bench presses three bills. He runs a four four forty or something. First off, <laughs> my only my, you want to talk about nitpicking here. This is nitpicking for me. He's I'm, I'm gonna guess he's a tight end because of what Casey said earlier about you know he keeps catching, he can catch, touchdown, pa- catching passes. touchdown passes. He's a little uh, he's 1998's version of Gronk. Not he's calling, again, I, not calling I, Gronk a piece of a piece of crap uh, sexual. Right. Deviant, but that, but, that but that's who I thought. Yes. That's who I thought of. I thought I thought this is like 1998 Gronk who plays for the Giants or the Jets. But that being said, you're not running a 4440. <laughs> I'm sorry if you are that large and uh, even if you're a, an athletic tight end, you're not gonna run a 4440. You know who runs 4440s? Cornerbacks and safeties and wide receivers, <laughs> not six foot four, 270 pound tight ends. You don't run a 4440, Chris Patrick. Sorry. So we go to another scene. This That's part of why I think I said this was such a, a sports night episode, is there are a million different scenes in this episode. And I think we mentioned this either last episode or the previous, that once we start getting that constant switching of, of not just setting, but seeing, hey, there's a lot going on all at once, you get that vibe. We've got the serious mixed with the funny. We've got all the characters really getting hashed out where now we have our, our 34th main character really getting their, their big piece to dig into with yeah. Natalie's character, it's it's become as the episode goes on more what you'll what you will see. I think so. That scene ends and we start a new one with Dana in Isaac's office in the dark, just contemplating. Um, and Casey walks in and tells her that intent to view tracking puts them in 4.2 million homes. So you're bringing us to the big time. She's gotten exactly what she wanted. We're gonna have tons of ratings here. We have. Casey, this is, I have a note here that this is a really nice moment between these two that isn't a romantic moment. Because so far, the more we get between Casey and Dana, it's a romantic thing. But they're great with each other. And it shows their their connection and the fact that they kind of trust each other professionally, etc. As uh, Dana starts to explain, I sent her there on purpose. She knows how Christian Patrick is with women in the locker room. She knows his his past. And so I sent Natalie instead of Jeremy because I, I was hoping to get a rise. And you get... Casey just saying, I know, and she knows that too. And Natalie like, knows that too. Like, that that we, struck me. We all, hard too. yeah. It's it's again showing how these people know each other so well. They know their motives. They know exactly what the other person is thinking as it goes forward. And you get that really kind of powerful line where we're said first it was the right thing to do, and you're like, well, was it? And then you get I sold her, which is that really like, ooh, she's really yeah. feeling guilt over what's happened here and how she is the reason that she put her friend. And her, and her colleague in this really terrible position. And we get another Sorkinism where Natalie wouldn't complain if her hair was on fire. Yeah. Like, she would do whatever you wanted her to do. She's, she cares that much. Um, and then Casey's saying to Dana, you tend to do the right thing. So he knows you're going to rectify this. I know this has just been a whirlwind of a day and things got really crazy, but I trust that you're going to do the right thing. That scene comes to an end, and we've got now Dan stopping in on Natalie asking her how's the wrist she kind of snaps at him and he's still a very reserved very dan he goes yeah, cool right. and he starts to leave and she she stops and talks to him then we get dan and natalie's conversation where they make this reference to we all remember a boston globe reporter and that's a reference to lisa olsen which we'll talk about who was really kind of as far as this kind of episode this kind of thing going was the first big high profile uh, instance 1990 it was the the patriots locker room where she had a number of athletes just kind of make comments or gestures or, or expose themselves. And it was handled so poorly that I believe the general manager of the Patriots ended up getting fired because of how he handled the situation. There was like very little punishment at all. Small fines of like tens of thousands of dollars to some of these players. 
death threats. Her tires were slashed. She literally was transferred to Australia in the middle of all this, which Natalie mentions she had to move to the other side of the world. It's this big moment of this is unfortunately kind of the world for women in sports sometimes. And Natalie is now just kind of the next. She says, we all remember that. I would be that. I would become that. It would ruin my career. One of my friends, and we'll talk to Tess Quinlan about this too, but Jen Latta, it's, uh, the timing of this is very odd that we're recording this on a day where Jen uh, was on Twitter today. She works for ESPN. She worked for Comcast in Chicago for a long time. She covered the Bulls and the Cubs and the White Sox and everybody here in town, and everybody was a big fan of her. When she was 22 years old, fresh out of college, she got an invite for a job interview out west in like a top 10 market, and it was a big deal, and she talked about going to see the sports cast. The sports director was the one who was doing the hiring, and the sports director was saying, well, let's go to let's go to dinner after the show. It's going to be a little late, but let's go anyway. And Jen's like trying to justify that. Like, well, it's sports. Yeah. And it's night. We're doing a night sports cast or a newscast. And of course, we're going to be out late to grab drinks or dinner or whatever. And she talks about how this guy was overly aggressive and drank way too much alcohol, like an inappropriate amount for a business meeting. And then instead of driving her back to her hotel, he drove her to his house and was saying things like, well, I want to show you the pool. Like, I think you'd, you'd enjoy it. And, uh, and it, I, you just hear these creepy details that Jen's bringing up. And again, not only was she telling the story, but Jen was saying how she felt in all of these moments and saying, well, I want this. I still want this job. I don't want to lose out on this opportunity. This is such a big chance. And that's how people are trying to justify these things to themselves. And I guess this jackass sports director, for whatever reason, who Jen unfortunately would tweet, uh, at the end of this all, uh, at the end of all this, that he still has the job that he was that he had when she interviewed at this station. Uh, he was tremendously inappropriate and and almost stalkerish. And to her credit, she emailed the news director and said, "Hey, I'm not trying to do this for infamy. I don't want to be famous. I'm letting you know this is a liability, and this guy acted really inappropriately." And the news director said, hey, we're going to try to do something about it. And then the news director eventually left. And the sports director, who was, who was the guy who was doing this, this stuff, is still there. And, so, I mean, sorry for ranting so much about it. But Jen's a friend of mine, and she's a, a really accomplished sportscaster to go from Chicago to ESPN and do the things she's she – work, she works on College Game Day, an award-winning, Emmy-winning show. She's a contributor to that show. She does a great job with a bunch of sports. And I just feel terrible uh, that she had to do something like that. But – Unfortunately, there are so many women that have a story like Jen does, and I'm happy she didn't get that job because now she's doing great stuff and she doesn't have to deal with a jackass like that anymore. But that's all too often a story that we hear from several females that that work in this industry. It's unfortunate. This scene comes to a close with Dan really showing that support. He says, the only reason I came in here is to tell you this. No matter what you decide, you've got friends, and this is what friends gear up for. Like, don't be afraid stand up and don't be afraid to do really the right thing and, and, and state your case. The sky will fall down on you, but we're here for you. I wrote this down. I know Aaron Sorkin gets tagged for not writing women very well sometimes. And obviously this is the infancy of his television writing career. And Natalie at times is kind of a damsel in distress, quote unquote. But at the end of it all, like Natalie's going to show up and be super strong at the end of this episode. And if you extrapolated this to today, this really is how a lot of women feel. So I don't know if Aaron Sorkin did it on purpose or if somebody helped him on this or if it just happened by accident, but I think this was a really well-written 
25 minutes when it came to how yeah. this particular woman deals with these problems. Worth noting, like we said at the top of the show, Tracy Stern helping him out on the script. So getting that that female point of view really shows yeah. where our characters so, are yeah. very strong. Absolutely. Scene change goes into then Dana deciding that's it. We're, we're closing this thing up. She's running. She knocks over somebody <laughs> with a huge pile of tapes. Kind of stops to help them, but then like throws the tapes back down. I thought that was a yeah. funny little moment. She gets in there and sees... Christian Patrick surrounded by admirers in the studio. She goes up to Isaac and says, we did a big, big thing badly. Can I try to fix it? And he says, of course, you know. And then the interview is off. And Patrick's lawyer says, you're going to be the laughing stock of broadcast news. And this is a great line. We're pretty much used to that by now. Three minutes to air. Folks, I'm pretty sure I heard my boss ask you all to leave the building. This is a third place show on a fourth rate network. Yeah, but that's all going to change once I grow a goatee. He's just crazy enough to do it, too. And at the end of all that, as Dan's going back behind the desk, I love he gives a little kind of stare down to Christian Patrick as well. Uh, just a lot of great little little details here. I wrote down that the alternate episode title for this one should be Smaller People Staring at Bigger People. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, there there's between Jeremy staring down Chris Patrick earlier in the show... Dan giving giving him the the stink eye while he's walking away, and then you see the, the just the shot of Dan after he walks past Chris Patrick, just kind of giving a <laughs> sigh of relief, <laughs> nothing happened, and then Dana Whitaker staring down Chris Patrick uh, in the at the end of the episode as well. Just alternate episode title: Smaller People Staring at Bigger People. <laughs> that scene comes to a close, and our final one, and this is a scene that's given me some trouble back and forth. Yeah, I would agree um, with this too. Natalie confronts Christian Patrick seemingly under the studio. He's coming down the stairs or maybe just like somewhere behind the scenes. Confronts him, A, alone in a dark corridor, which I'm for her, I feel like has to be terrifying. I would be very scared. She kind of tosses a football at him very playfully. And they yeah, have, like she, she comes in with like a very like bubbly demeanor yes. in this regard. I would never have thought that this would be the setting for that. Although maybe it is just like her strength coming through. Maybe, yeah. Um, but Christian Patrick kind of is like, oh, man. Much this isn't that big nothing, deal, right? right? Yeah. Oh, what's going on? So maybe I came on to you a little bit, right? Um, but then Natalie tells him... You remember how much you wanted to play professional football when you were a kid? Yeah. That's how much I wanted to be a sports reporter. I was just there doing my job. But tomorrow, the sky's going to fall down on both of us. Because as soon as my show comes down at midnight, I'm going over to the 23rd Precinct and I'm swearing out a warrant for your arrest. And then it ends with... That how much do you love me line? I I don't get that line in this episode. It happens a few times. I don't quite understand. I mean, I get it what he's trying to do, and he does it a lot in his writing, Sorkin, where a phrase will keep coming back. But this one I just don't like. Right now, right this moment, how much do you love me? And he's Christian Patrick has the reaction I would have, like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, because he doesn't have any context for this no. callback at all. But but I mean, uh, yeah, that that was I, I wasn't a fan of that either. I love Natalie's strength at the end of this episode. And just saying, you know, I'm going to go to the police station and, and you're going to get in trouble, basically. I and love that she says, the sky's going to fall down on both on of both us. On both of us. Yeah. And she knows. And, and she's coming to terms with it. And I love her strength in this. I just didn't like the setting. And I didn't like that line at the end. It just felt kind of out of place more than anything else. And then Chris Patrick, you know, regardless, he still has the same reaction that I'm sure he would have anyway. Regardless of what Natalie would have told him afterwards, he spikes the football he gives and walks that football away. hell and, and just storms away holding a duffel bag for some reason yeah what Another are those, little detail what are you what are you carrying around yeah, what's what's in that duffel bag exactly so a great ending in this episode is the broadcast is still going on uh dana comes and apologizes 
to Natalie, and Natalie just kind of hugs her and says, tell me a joke, Dana, which is this great moment. As we had seen earlier, she can't tell a joke. I don't think you have much of a sense of humor, haha, but she just wants, just be my friend right now. Just, just make me laugh. And interestingly, our title card comes up at the very end of this episode, which yeah. is the first time it's happened. But it's a nice kind of well-rounded ending right there. And my note then at the end says, this is the first real episode. I keep keep saying that on this, but this is the one that feels like the rest will feel. It's got kind of a serious tone. It's got a lot of funny lines, very quotable, um, and not a ton of slapstick, but just enough to make you have a couple of little belly laughs here or there. Yeah, I, th- I think this is more drama than comedy, for sure. Uh, obviously the subject matter is pretty serious and there's a lot of different things like we said it's it's females in the locker room and the harassment that they deal with it's balancing ratings against journalistic integrity there's a lot of different things that we we get a chance to to touch on in this episode it's really intense and and it is not the easiest episode to go through if you're expecting it to go the way let's say intellectual property went i mean it's a it's a pretty significant 180 absolutely from a from a belly laughing episode to we're hitting some serious stuff here it's an episode where it's got a very good standalone story just that story its own sure works but it's also since we know it's going to play out for another episode or two as well it gives you enough to kind of look forward and really want to see this conclusion and it gives you that sort of here's a lot of heavy but we can kind of ease off the heaviness later on as well so it balances out very well in the grand scheme of things within this, the, the season as well. Obviously, we've been really enjoying bringing you our perspectives and walking you through the first now five episodes of this show, but we thought that it would be interesting and maybe a little educational and just more insightful to bring on a female perspective, especially for an episode like this. So we decided to contact a friend of mine, Tess Quinlan of NBC Sports, uh, a Marquette University grad whom I met several years ago when I was working when I was first starting out at ESPN and just a really bright person really smart really engaged really knows her stuff and I th- and, and a huge huge sports night fan as we actually got to learn how much of a fan of sports night she is when we got a chance to interview her so here is that interview with Tess Quinlan of NBC Sports and we're now joined by Tess Quinlan podcast producer for NBC Sports fresh off working uh diligently for the Rio Olympics. So first and foremost, Tess, how was that experience these last few weeks? It is completely overwhelming, but it was absolutely incredible. Uh, So this is my second Olympics. I was an intern uh, for NBC in London, and I laughed because someone said this to me when I was there. They said, in about a week, you're finally going to come out of this just trance and go, when can I go back? And when can I start it again? And right now I'm in the stage of I just want to go home and go to bed (laughs) like most people working at NBC are right now um, because it's a lot of long hours, it's a lot of long days, but you also are on the front lines of one of the greatest events in sports. So to be able to be a part of that, it it was unreal. I I loved every second of it. Even the moments where I'm like, it's, you know, 1 a.m. and all I want to do is go home and, you know, watch sports night on TV or on my computer. But it was every moment I thought, you know, I could really be doing something with my life that is a lot more boring than this. And this is pretty cool. How were you first introduced to Sports Night? And how has it maybe influenced you, if at all, into the, the career path that you've, you've been lucky enough to, to be a part of? So some background for the listeners. Uh, I've grown up in sports. My dad works on the sports administrative side. So I literally have grown up in a gym. That is that has been the running joke, is I am a gym rat through and through. And 
when I was a when I was a kid, I was really into sports journalism. Like, you know how kids want to be like dolphin trainers or firefighters or ballerinas. I always wanted to be a sports journalist. And when my dad my dad first started watching Sports Night, and then I got into Sports Night later on. And when we would travel, we would bring like a bulky TV, and it like plugged into the cigarette lighter, and we would watch VHS of Sports Night on the road. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is like a big thing, like part of a really integral part of my dad and my relationship was sports night when I was a kid. And it, it's gotten to the point now that this was several years ago for Christmas. My dad was like, I don't know what to get Tess. And I was like, Mom, I don't know what to get Dad. And so we each independently bought the box set of sports night <laughs> on DVD for each other the same year at Christmas. So, I mean, and here's the one thing. I love the show. We both loved it. We're both big Sorkin fans. We both would watch The West Wing and Newsroom and all that sort of stuff as, you know, Sorkin went further along. But Dana Whitaker has always been my absolute favorite character. Like, she is the original Olivia Pope. She is the original Mackenzie McHale. She was, the like, just the greatest person ever. And I always remember thinking, whenever I saw Dana on TV, is that, she wasn't necessarily a person that was in front of the camera and that women could run the show behind the camera, which was really inspiring because she was the first person that I really saw and said, oh, wow, this is a possibility for me. So I'm a big Dana Whitaker fan. Well, the episode we were discussing this week is the Mary Pat Shelby episode, which deals heavily with kind of the presence of female reporters in the arena of sports and the unfortunate but uh, sometimes common episodes of harassment that they face we wanted to get your your thoughts on it and how this comes up in real life versus a fictional portrayal or how they handle it in this episode based on how it could be handled in real life i think they did a good job of portraying it um i think that obviously when you are in a fictional situation some of it can be dramatized a little bit but also uh some of it's pretty authentic i mean there is a point where natalie says you know i'm fine can i just go back to doing my job and i think uh, some women react in that way almost immediately because they just want everything to go back to normal. And I think that that was really real and very authentic. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting was when she said, you know, this is a soundproof room and I can still hear the phones ringing off the hook and I can still hear the, you know, the hushed conversations. I'm already out of the loop. And I think that uh, personally, I've never been in a situation like Natalie, but I think that a lot of women that have gone through that situation feel that terror of, why am I being cut out of the loop because of something that wasn't my fault? Um, but I think it was very, it was really accurate. Uh, I think that there have been a lot of changes in the last five or ten years since this. I mean, when was this? This was first season, right? So 99, right? 98, yep. yeah. 98, okay. So, I mean, think about it. It's almost 20 years since this has gone out, and this is still a problem. I do think there's been a lot of advancements and a lot of changes and a lot of policies put in place that have prevented this, but it does still happen. You know, the way it was written with everybody kind of rallying around Natalie, obviously, you know, they're tight, they're, co they're close-knit, they're very close friends, uh, several of the people that work together with Natalie. Do you feel that you have, if something like this were to happen to you, do you feel like there you have, like, a support system that would be willing to go to bat for you? Do you feel like your bosses, your the company, your coworkers, your 
your the, the friends that that are involved directly with something like that do you feel like you have a support system like natalie happened to have 150 percent. and here's the great part about that my support system personally is that it's a wide ranging group so it's you know women that are friends of mine from college or friends of mine from the industry that are my age but then there's also women especially that i know that are older that have been in the business a long time that have been through a lot of the stuff and can offer a lot of advice about what, you know, if something were like this were to happen, what's the next step? Um, at MEC specifically, I felt I've, you know, that support system is definitely there, 150%. Um, the guys that I work for are tremendous. I love working for them. It's it, it's one of the best parts about going to work is I get to go work with an incredible group of men and women who genuinely care about me as a human and genuinely care about the work that we do. So I do feel like that support system is definitely there. And that the cool part about that is that goes all the way up to the top. That's not just like my direct boss or my direct supervisor. That is, you know, senior VPs, that is heads of digital. Like that is a really great part of MEC. Seeing kind of how she reacts to the situation initially, I mean, it's it's tough to watch Dana kind of have to battle her herself a little bit in yeah. in that regard, just to see. Well, you know, I, you know, she she felt like she did something wrong uh, after initially feeling like she was doing the right thing by the show. How do you kind of see that balance, whether it's in this particular episode or in in circumstances you've seen of balancing what's good for ratings and what's good for whether it's morality or journalism or the ethics of it all? Like, how do you see that balance? So I'm kind of so I'm kind of a nerd, and I took notes on the episode. <laughs> for the first, well, first welcome, thing. To, welcome to our world. You are in good hands. Yeah, yeah this is excellent. <laughs> so I took notes on the episode, and I literally have written down: I love Dana and Jeremy as characters, but there needs to be balance in this situation. And Adam, when you and I were talking about this episode specifically before I decided to come on the show, I said this is such a roller coaster of emotions that go throughout the course of this episode for me, and. I distinctly remember watching this episode and going, oh my gosh, Dana, what are you doing? Because I didn't feel like she's being sensitive to what Natalie wanted. And and I felt like there was a scene missing that like would have captured this. But the one thing I was really proud of is that she eventually came to the conclusion that this wasn't the right call. And I loved what Peter Krause says, we're doing a big thing badly. And I went, oh my gosh, that's totally right. For me, from like a, from a journalistic perspective, I thought that they shouldn't, they should have canned it immediately. Just said, you know what? No, like this isn't right. But, and I think that Isaac thought that too, but didn't know how to tell Dana that he wanted to do that. There's that great moment when, when Dana is giving her defense for why we should go on with this. And Dan says, you had me till the last part when she mentions, and Natalie deserves her story to be told. I think that's that, line that hits Dana as being like, oh my God, you're right. She doesn't, she doesn't seem eager to make that, but it really makes her open her eyes a little bit, which is another good part of good writing and good performance out of everybody in this very, it's a very serious episode compared to what we've seen so far. It was so intense. And I love Dan Rydell throughout this entire episode because I thought that his reactions to everything, minus the whole, I'm taking the day off from being good. I think that's (laughs) complete, not good things, but I thought that that was totally accurate. His reaction to Natalie and how he approached that I thought was great. And then the best was when he was like, my boss asked you to leave at the end. I just was like, that's the perfect cherry on the top of the whole thing. 
Tess, I, th- I was curious about this because you and I have a lot of mutual friends. You're a Marquette graduate. Uh, we have a, a very close mutual friend in Jen Latta, who's a Marquette graduate as well. It happened to time out today. Uh, she had retweeted a story about uh, harassment against women who are in journalism. And there obviously is a reference to Lisa Olson, uh, a Boston Herald reporter who had some issues in the 1990s in the New England Patriots locker room. And you think, well, that's 25 years ago, 26, 26 years ago. That, that probably isn't as prevalent now. But Jen, she had brought up a story about her first job interview out of college when she was 22 out west and a pretty horrifying tale that encompassed about 20 to 25 tweets. I mean, has there been a situation where you have felt something along those lines? You know, whether you want to go into details or not, is fine. But just have you had moments like that where you felt kind of almost helpless in that regard or, or just trying to get away from what happened and try to go focus back on work the way you were talking about with Natalie? I've been really fortunate in the fact that I haven't experienced that. Jen's tale was harrowing. I read it as I was standing in my new apartment today, and I was—I just got... I, I, first, I was infuriated, and then I got chills, because that could happen to anybody at any point. And I've been really fortunate. I've had a lot of really great bosses and a lot of great interviews where something like that did not happen. But here's the thing that's interesting about this, is that there is a lot of these stories that are going untold, because women might not want to share it. They might just want to be like, I just want to go back to the end, or I just want to go back to normal, as I said earlier. But I think it shows a lot of strength that Jen was willing to share that with everybody, because I haven't looked at her mentions, but I'm sure that there's a lot of really supportive ones, but I'm also sure that there's a lot of complete vitriol on there right now. And the fact that she was willing to take that on just so that someone else could feel comfort in knowing that, like, as horrible as it sounds, someone else has gone through this. I think that speaks a lot to the kind of person that Jen is. And that actually, to piggyback on that, I wanted to ask you about just as you as coming up in the industry and as you were getting more and more experience, is there and this might be I'm trying to phrase this correctly here, but you think of stories about like Lisa Olson, Olson which was mm-hmm. so terrible and really just explosive and what she had to deal with. Is there ever a time as you're coming up? where someone like sits you down or where you're kind of like told, Hey, this is something that can happen. Or is it almost like just kind of in the background unmentioned until something truly awful goes on? I was, I was just curious if there's like any, Hey, you might have to deal with this kind of going on. There, there's not like a secret treehouse meeting. where we. Talk <laughs> <about>. <laughs> um, it's not like some weird, like indoctrination thing that goes down, you know, okay, here's your sports journalist card. By the way, sexual harassment's a thing. Uh, no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, I mean, I think that, honestly, if you're going into sports journalism as a woman, you've heard of the tales. There's not, like, a handbook that comes with that. Right. That's the one thing I'm trying to say. I mean, yeah, you're if you're going into this business, you're aware that there is more, there is sexual harassment out there and that you need to be cognizant of it. Kind of going back to the long lines of Dana and trying to make the decision of balancing the journalistic integrity and the aspect of ratings. I know that is a topic that hits not only you guys at NBC, I'm sure, and I'll bring up an example, the Ryan Lochte stuff this week. Yeah. Uh, we deal with it at ESPN on a con- pretty considerable basis based on the type of shows that are on t- TV sometimes. I know Fox deals with it. Everybody deals with it. Is there a sense that you get of what the leeway is like of trying to stay journal, you know, trying to keep the integrity of the journalism compared to trying to do what's best 
for the network and the bottom line and things like that? Is there a sense that you have about that in, in the place that you're in right now? That's a really tricky question. Uh, I, I almost don't compare it to like a balance beam. Like it's a very thin line between keeping that journalistic integrity and what's best. Uh, and that's, I'd say that, I mean, I think you take it on a case-by-case basis. I think it depends on what the situation is. I think it depends how severe it is. I think it depends on, if it's, is it a five-minute interview with an NFL player or is it a 45-minute sit-down with Ryan Lochte? I think it really depends. I think the other thing that's interesting is the what's on limit, what's off limits and what you can talk about. Those conversations always fascinate me and kind of what people are willing to budge on and what they're not. I mean, Adam, have you experienced that? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, especially in game coverage, which is a little different, I would yeah. say, than, than than a typical sit-down interview or a talk show or or a studio show. You know, there is there is issues with that. Um, part of the part of it is we don't really want to talk about certain things, not because we don't think they're important, but because they're not germane to the event that we're covering or they're not right. as pertinent. You know, the game still dictates the main point and the crux of our coverage. You know, for me as for me specifically as a play-by-play guy, but I'm sure for the people in studio, it's those conversations are a lot more difficult for the people in, in studio and people like, you know, the Costases and the Tarikos of the world and the Rebecca Lowe's who are doing, you know, sit-down interviews the way and, and Matt Lauer this week, you know, right. the way the way that they they have to go about their jobs. I'm sure that's there is a there is a significant difference there. So I don't feel it as much. And I feel it a little bit, but not a ton. So we're pretty good there. Well, Tess, we really appreciate the time, and uh, oh. you are the inaugural guest. That's uh, I, you are the I guinea pig. I feel so special. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Like there are very few things that I get like really like nerd completely excited about, and this was one of them. When I saw Adam's first tweet, I freaked out. All right, thanks, Tess. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Huge thanks to Tess for coming on and, and talking with us. Really insightful to hear somebody in the real life real world today still having these thoughts i love how big a fan of she is of the show too that <laughs> hanging out with dad watching vhs Absolutely. is amazing that was to me. awesome that was an awesome story but and like i said tess is just super smart and really knows her stuff and does a great job for NBC. she's worked in dc she's worked at usa today in the past as well so she's got a great resume and i thought just some really really insightful stuff and we're so happy that that tess could take some time to to join us and and like you said, this this episode is is a great standalone, but the themes will continue. And it turns out the next episode is is a direct continuation. So it's not exactly like a two part episode, but it kind of comes off like like a two part right. run for for this episode going into the next. We don't end with a to be continued, but it's it's going to be continued, which is great. So that's going to do it for us this week on those stories. Plus, uh, thank you. For all of our listeners out there, remember you can get us on iTunes. Search us up there. You can follow us on Twitter at Those Stories Pod. You can check out the website at thosestoriespod.weebly.com. And you can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Amin. And you can, I mean, pretend to follow me on Twitter at <laughs> SJCIM. And we will be back next week talking about episode six, the head coach dinner and the morning mail. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.